0: You're listening to the New Story Podcast from New Story Church in Kansas City. To learn more about New Story Church, visit our website at www.newstory.church. It is the hardest thing in the world to not say good morning right now. I, I've been like rehearsed on just about everything, except I've said good morning to about all of you so far. So I apologize. Good evening, church. It's good to see you. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I work with our students and our creative team um, and thankful to be with you this evening, see all your smiling faces out there. Merry Christmas. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, now, kids, we've been, uh, we've been pretty interactive and having some fun, but I want to talk to your parents for just a few minutes. Is that okay? Can you guys stick with me for a little bit while I talk with them? Play. You got snacks in there. You got lights. Feel free to go nuts. But I want to talk to your parents for just a minute. And to get us into this evening, I I just have a a few minutes with you guys. How many of you have ever heard of Mandela Effects? You guys ever heard of Mandela Effects? Know what that is? Well, I'll help you out in case you didn't know. Mandela Effects are a, a kind of a phenomenon where we've collectively misremembered events. Um, or historical facts or pop culture moments. Um, it, all, it all started back with uh, Nelson Mandela, um, president of South Africa, that people had just like collectively remembered that he had died in prison in the 80s when really he died in 2013. And everyone was like, what? I don't know what's real anymore. Well, I want to give you a few more because now it's just a phenomenon where this has happened a bunch. Um, for, first one, uh, the, the world shifted in a specific movie in the star wars trilogy when darth vader said what important line luke i am your father except that's not the actual line did you know that he doesn't say luke i am your father he says no i am your father we've misremembered that i've always said that too he says luke and you say it in that voice luke i that's not what he says maybe another one any um any uh what's it Uh, matrix fans any matrix fans in here a few, okay, nobody's seen The Matrix, apparently. Um, in, the Ma- in The Matrix, when Morpheus is going to Neo, and we're looking at the red pill and the blue pill, he says, what if I told you? And then he, you know, finishes the line. Does that sound familiar to anyone? That never happened. That line is not anywhere in the trilogy of The Matrix. Nowhere. And that's become a meme all by itself. It's a thing that people say, what if I told you? And they think they're quoting Morpheus when really we're cro- uh, quoting a figment of our imagination. Maybe another one that will be more applicable for people my age. I'm a millennial. Something we kind of collectively remember happening was a movie came out in the 90s called Shazam with Sinbad in it. Anybody remember this? That movie didn't exist. It never happened. It never happened. There was a movie called Kazam with a um, uh, Shaq. But maybe that's where we're getting that. But we have this memory of this. Maybe one for all generations. How many of you guys have played Monopoly? Most of us, okay, the rest of you are lying. Everyone's played Monopoly. Um, Most of us remember the Monopoly guy, the little guy that's running everywhere, uh, being a little hard of sight and having a monocle. He never had a monocle. I, I know. You never had a monocle. We are mixing up, if, if I'm guessing this is where this comes from, we're mixing it up with Mr. Peanut, who's standing there with his, you know, cane and his monocle and his top hat. We're mixing those two things, but you can look it up. Don't do it right now, because I know some of you are tempted. Um, you can look it up later on, or go play Monopoly later on. The guy never wore a monocle. You'll never see it from the original on to, on to now. Um, it, I think it's, very interesting that these things can happen to us. I always find it fascinating. Um, some of you are right now thinking about how I am wrong and how you don't know if you can trust anything else I say this evening because you're so right. Um, but I can promise you these things are what are called Mandela effects. They never happened. The feeling that you may be feeling, man, I could have sworn that this was real, but it's not. That feeling, that feeling maybe what you're feeling right now, isn't reserved just for Mandela effects. It happens a lot this time of year. And we love to hear about and we love to sing about and, and talk about the, the peace and joy of Christmas. But if we're honest with ourselves, and I know this is church and we're not supposed to be honest here, but if we can actually be honest in church for once, we'd say we believe in peace and joy this time of year as much as we believe in these Mandela effects. Man, I think they're real, but it's not. And so to, to kind of supplement this, we try to get our kids all caught up in it with, um, with, with the lights and the big guy in the, in the red suit. And, and uh, we, we, you know, the, but peace and joy are no more real to us than, and I'll be careful, some of the more famous figures of Christmas. This time of year represents uh, something incredibly beautiful entering into our world and happening in our world, but we have grown cold and cynical Um, because of the difficulty in our everyday lives. And if you're like me, there's a part of you that wishes peace and joy were real, but you can't really bring yourself to believe it. So instead of knowing what it's like uh, to live with lasting peace, what often happens is we settle uh, for this kind of just... uh, fleeting emotions of the holiday season um, and uh, act kind of like a band-aid on our soul. Uh, for example, like we, we put on the Santa hat, we eat the ham or whatever you eat at Christmas. I know that's, that, that's contested. You eat the ham, um, you, you go to the parties, you exchange gifts, all hoping that this holiday cheer will help us forget about the breakup or the divorce. We medicate ourselves with cocktails and cookies and Christmas movies to avoid the loneliness, the loneliness that we feel. We sing the Christmas carols about, about comfort and joy while ignoring all of the problems that are happening in our lives so we can just have a moment of peace and calm for today. And we try to hide from ourselves, but the difficulty of our lives can only hide for so long before it rears its ugly head and its back. And that's why many, for many of us, Christmas isn't the most wonderful time of year. It's actually the, the darkest time of the year. It's when you're confronted with the, the biggest mistake or your deepest pain when your family member you you remember that your family member isn't around even though you prayed and you prayed and prayed and the disease or the cancer or whatever it may be still took their life when you still go to bed alone at night again and again and your ring finger is still empty when the crib is still empty and the pregnancy test still comes back negative the reality of pain in our lives has kind of eroded away at the hope or our chance at hope and it's keeping us from believing that peace and joy can truly be experienced. Now, I want to show you, you're like, Jeremy, this is a downer. I want to show you that I believe it's possible and I want you to see why we even bother with Christmas. To be clear, I don't get paid like a lot of money to come up here and just lie to you guys. hey, Adeline, what's going on? Um glad, glad you came up to visit. Uh, we're going to go ahead and start. You guys can come forward and pray at the... Oh, I'm kidding. Um, how many, how many uh, Just As I Am choruses can we sing? Some of, you, some of y'all know what I'm talking about. But I want to show you why we bother with Christmas this year. I want to show you that I believe that you can experience the peace and joy and hope of this season even as you navigate the difficulty of the life. That you're living now. Even though we are we are a church that tries to not assume information on people that you you and all this Bible background. Um, so whether you've been a a Christian for a long time or not a Christian at all, I'm just going to kind of assume though that most of us know the Christmas story, kind of know the basics of the Christmas story. Maybe we go to church a couple times a year, and one of them is right now. And we're like, okay, I know the Christmas story. I know what we're going to hear about, but. And real quick, when I say the Christmas story, I just want to be clear. I'm not talking about this. I'm talking about this guy, this little nativity scene. Now, I want to review and catch us up on some major pieces before we jump in uh, here in just a moment. But there has been silence from God for 400 years before we get to the New Testament. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's 400 years where God is not active and he's, he's silent. And the silence has finally broken. As this young woman, her name is Mary, she hears that she's going to give birth to a baby boy even though she's engaged and she's still a virgin. And if you're not a Christian, or maybe even if you are, and that math is not mathing for you, trust me, I get it. And she goes to her fiance and she, she tells him what's going on. And it's, it's funny, Joseph reacts uh, the exact same way you and I would. He says, baby, this is perfectly reasonable. Thank you for sharing that with me. No, he didn't believe her. He says, you cheated on me when I specifically asked you not to? Some of y'all know that reference, too. It's, it's, it's this weird situation where he, he's just not sure what to do with this, as would you. And we're going to pick up the story from this point in Matthew 1. And I'm going to put it up on the screen here for you. But if you want to open one of those Bibles, you're welcome to do that. I always encourage you, especially around important things like the birth of Jesus, you make sure I'm not making anything up. Because I can put whatever I want on these screens. So I want you to always make sure that what I'm I'm saying is true and comes from the Bible. So I encourage you to open up to Matthew 1 if you want. Otherwise, I'll put it up here. But Matthew is a book, um, a letter written, or essentially a, a kind of a history written in about 70 A.D. by a guy named Matthew. Surprise, surprise. And he walked around with Jesus, he followed Jesus, and he wrote down what he saw and what he experienced. In this eyewitness account, Matthew says this in verse 20 of chapter 1, and I'll put it up here for us. It says this, But after he, Joseph, had considered this, what Mary had told him, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Verse 21. She will give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save people, his people, from their sins. So an angel comes. He affirms uh, what what, uh, Mary had told Joseph, and they live happily ever after, right? No, we know that's not true. But according to, I mean, this, this, this sweet nativity scene would have us believe that that's what happened. But this story is messy, it's dirty, it's dysfunctional if we just zoom out a bit. So can we do that? Can we zoom out a little bit and look at this objectively? Think about this. Mary is carrying an unborn baby while Joseph is carrying kind of the public ridicule and gossip of staying with this woman. In, their first, in her first trimester, any of you women who have had babies, you know how, how this is going to go. In your first trimester, uh, they traveled 80 miles on foot to visit some of their cousins. I don't know if you guys love your cousins that much. I don't know if I do to travel 80 miles on foot to go see them in your first trimester of, of pregnancy. Mary has morning sickness, um, and, and Joseph has no idea what he's doing. He's not helpful because no first-time dad knows what the heck he's doing. And you've probably experienced that too. In her third trimester, fast forward a little bit, in her third trimester, there's a call, or, or what's called a census, where they have to go back. They have to um, go back to Bethlehem, and they have to travel 100 miles again on foot in her third trimester. I'm guessing no one did that in here, in this room. She's immensely uncomfortable. She has to pee all the time. And now she has to walk 100 miles back to Bethlehem. And when they finally get into Bethlehem, their hotel room had been double booked. And so now they got to find this new place. And and Joseph is like, all we got is a barn, babe. And I don't know about you, but good luck convincing your now laboring wife that the best you can do on your budget is a barn. It's probably not going to go so well in that conversation and so mary actually gives birth surrounded by farm animals and you can imagine like they're they're making their sounds there's a cow standing behind a, a thing just kind of staring just kind of being really uncomfortable as cows do they just kind of stare awkwardly you know that's happening they're in us in this barn and as you guys know the story mary gives birth and the baby is put in what we call it a manger, but that is a feeding trough for the animals. And if you uh, have animals, you know how nasty those things get. And that's where the baby's placed. This sounds really sweet, but it's really not. There was no baby shower. There was no uh, pampering. There was no luxury. There was no epidural. But when this is what we visualize, we don't really think of how messy this scene really is. The problem here is that the Christmas story has become so common that we no longer really find it compelling. We say, You may sit here and say, okay, Jeremy, I get it. It was, it was a little bit more messy, but I still have my question I had at the beginning. What does this have to do with me? What does a, a young woman giving birth to a baby 2,000 years ago have to do with me? Well, this next part is huge when it comes to our ability to genuinely experience peace and joy and hope this season. So look at verse 22. I'll put it up here for you. Verse 22 and 23. All this took place, the birth of Jesus, all took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now hear me, there is this idea, and I don't, I don't know how we came up with this, but there's this idea that in order to come to church, in order to come to God or experience Him in any meaningful, way, real way, you have to clean yourself up. Maybe some of you have thought that before even coming in tonight. You've heard people say it, if I walk through those doors, I'm going to burst into flame. That's where this comes from. We have this idea that we have to clean ourselves up, talk a certain way, dress a certain way, and this passage shows us the exact opposite of that. The Christmas story is not a story of God seeing that everything was neat and tidy and then deciding to step into that and show up. It is a story of God following through on a promise he made 700 years prior. And it was in the midst of our pain and our mess, as we just saw, that God came and made his presence known to the very people he created and he loved. And so this passage in, in Matthew that we're reading here is actually a quote. If you, if you have a Bible open, you'll probably see a little footnote that points back to a prophet named Isaiah. And I'll put it up here for you. He's quoting from here, Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. See, Joseph was a, a Jewish man. He knew the Old Testament Bible. He knew the, what the prophets had said. He knew this. And so when the angel quotes this in Matthew, God is connecting the dots for him. And he's saying, Joseph, that that promise that that God made, that that I made 700 years ago, that promise, yeah, that is about to happen through the baby that is in your fiance's womb. And this would have been mind-blowing for them back then, because at that point in time, they didn't even utter the name of God. They actually had an abbreviation for it they didn't want to say the lord they didn't want to take the lord's name in vain and so they were so careful to just not even say the name and what we see here in this moment of Jesus's birth we see god going from a deity whose name you cannot speak to a baby with flesh on we see he went from a god whose name you could not utter to being so desperate to be near to us that he took on the messiest form in order to be near to you and me. See, some of us think that God is distant or he's indifferent, um, or, or he's, dis- he's keeping his distance from us because of our messiness or our baggage, but the story of Christmas proves that he is not afraid of your messiness. Rather, he came to meet you in the middle of it, Emmanuel, God with us. God with us means that the God of the universe it's not indifferent to your difficulty, your dysfunction, or your desperation. And this is ultimately where we get our hope. This assures us that, that real peace and real hope are really available because in our mess, he drew near to us uh, and offers us renewal. He offers us redemption through his son, Emmanuel. Or we know him as Jesus. Jesus. And that name Jesus, you you may not be aware, the name Jesus in Hebrew is actually Yeshua. It's also where we get Joshua. And there's two Hebrew roots in in that name Yeshua. There is Yahweh, kind of the name of, of the God of the Old Testament. And the second is the word saves. And so the very name of Jesus means God is salvation. Emmanuel means God with us. Jesus means God is salvation. And so the story of Christmas is a story that the God of the universe came down to be with us, Emmanuel, and to save us, Jesus, from our brokenness once and for all. And here's what I can tell you. If you acknowledge that, if you acknowledge that you're broken, that you're not perfect, that you're in need of a Savior, Christmas is a reminder of the hope and peace available to you. is a reminder that because of what you've done or what has been done to you no longer has the last word of your life. The love of God shown through Jesus, this is what defines you. And if we believe that, we can experience peace that makes no sense at all around this time of year. And if we don't believe that, Jesus is always going to feel a little bit more like this Christmas fairy tale than he does Emmanuel. Listen, you will never experience the gifts of Christmas if you don't admit that you need them. Uh, Being broken and acknowledging your brokenness is ultimately how you receive the gift of peace in the midst of our chaos. And until we find peace in Jesus, we will never be at peace with ourselves or with people. Listen, there's not enough money in this world that will give you the peace and joy your heart longs for. There's not a career, a house, a dream, or a professional pursuit that will give you enough to satisfy your soul. Only Jesus can give you that peace because it means that God is with you even in your mess. This is a peace that is steadfast, that is a God-given reality that despite your darkest moments... And in your deepest shame, in Jesus, God drew near. There's no mess too dirty for the love of God, whatever you've come to believe. It reminds us that while all may not be well in my life, it can be well with my soul. See, when we started, you may have noticed, uh, if if you had your Bible open especially, you may have noticed that we skipped uh, a majority of of the first part of Matthew. Why do we do that? Well, first, it's a genealogy, and I didn't want to embarrass myself trying to read a bunch of names, and you'd probably fall asleep anyway, but it's a genealogy, and in ancient Hebrew culture, genealogies were a lot like um, modern dating profiles. They were selectively honest. And if anyone has done online dating, you know what I'm talking about, being selectively honest. Like, online, online dating profiles, guys will say that they're 6'2", when they're barely 6 foot, even with, with like, cowboy boots on. Or you'll, you'll put in there that you're a runner when you want, you, you have one pair of Lululemon yoga pants, and you've run one 5K, and now you're a runner. This is selectively honest. This is what we do. If you've done online dating, you've seen that. But similarly, genealogies are... are, are, are of, through ancient history, we're selectively honest to make you look as good as possible. But the family of Jesus that you read through in Matthew is not edited or amended in any way. In fact, it is incredibly jacked up. It includes Gentiles who, who were non-Jewish people and viewed as dogs in Hebrew culture. It includes women who were seen as second-class citizens in, ancient, in the ancient world. It includes sinners, and, and for the sake of kids being present, I won't go into what all that means. But listen, anyone trying to manufacture the case for Jesus being God would have never included all the baggage that Jesus includes in his family line. His family is filled with misfits and screw-ups and outcasts and the morally corrupt. But here's what I want you to, to remember today, that the family Jesus came from tells us everything about the people he came for. The family that Jesus personally identifies with comes from and includes things that sound like we're playing like a buzzword bingo. It includes family dysfunction, exploitation, addiction, anger, anxiety, loneliness, marginalization, oppression, shame, manipulation, rage, desperation. And if you can find yourself somewhere on that list, you can find yourself in the family of God. The fact that Jesus came from all these types of people means that he's saying to you today, I've not come to whitewash your worst moments. I've come to redeem you at your worst and claim you as my own. The family Jesus came from tells us everything about the people he came for. Especially those of you who think that your weakness or your jacked upness excludes you. And hear me, what Jesus began at his birth, he finished on the cross for you. And it is through him and what he accomplished that we can have peace. He's the stability, he's the security, and the Savior in the midst of our waiting, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our difficulty, and by his grace alone. If we can be honest with our brokenness, about our brokenness, and our need for him, we can have peace, we can have hope, we can have joy. See, the Christmas story is more than a just carefully, uh, a sweet, carefully edited image that we often think of it as, a cute nativity scene. The Christmas story is a manual, God with us. The Christmas story shows us that we can know that while not all is right in my world and in my life, because of Jesus, it can be well in my soul. This is what I want you to remember this season. Well, all may not be right in your life. It can be well in your soul. What we're going to do in just a few minutes is we're going to end with uh, a tradition that we do around here. There's a special thing where we, we light candles and we, we surround the auditorium and it's this beautiful moment of, of kind of unity and we're going to sing a, a song that you all know because I know some of the songs you may not have known today. We'll sing a song that we all know. And one of our pastors, Pierce, is going to come up um, after, after I'm, I'm finished here. He's going to lead us through what this is going to look like and remind us of why we do this. We don't just light candles to light candles and potentially burn the building down. We do it because there's meaning behind it. So I'm going to pray for us, and then um, I, I encourage you um, to grab, uh, grab your... Um, actually, we're going to do that right now before I pray. I encourage you to grab your candles... Begin to make your way to the outer limits of the, just around the seats, if you would. Grab those candles and go.